How did Christianity make it into the big time? What is its future two millennia later? I'm presenting a five-part series on revisioning Christianity with my guests, John Dominic Crossan, John Shelby Spong, David Skirbina, Angela Yarber, and this week, Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman asks, how did a religion that began with a small group of illiterate day laborers become the dominant religion of the Roman Empire in just three centuries? What was gained and what was lost when the Roman Empire became the Christian Roman Empire? The artists and the authors, the musicians that we adore uh, come out of the Christian tradition one way or the other. So that's all great. Uh, But there are also losses. There are people whose religions were destroyed in front of their very eyes, whose uh, statues were mutilated, whose temples were leveled to the ground, whose books were burned, and that was a loss. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Be right back. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. For the Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. Bart Ehrman has been on my program three times previously. We discussed his books, Did Jesus Exist?, Jesus Before the Gospels, and How Jesus Became God. Today we explore the question, How Did Christianity Triumph? His book is The Triumph of Christianity, How a Forbidden Religion Swept the World. Pagans believed that you worship a divine being for the, for the benefits that can come from it for the crops and for the health and for the, uh, the victory in war and for, for whatever kind of benefits you pray for to God. And the Christians argued that their God could provide these things better than any of the pagan gods. That the pagan gods, in fact, were dead and lifeless and had no effect on anything, whereas the Christian God could heal the sick and he could even raise the dead. He could bring the rains. He could uh, make sure that a woman doesn't die in childbirth. I mean, could, could do all the things that you turn to the divine power for. And so Christians convince people. And the thing to stress is they didn't have to convince hundreds of people at a time. They had to convince one or two people every now and then. And every time they convinced somebody, that person joined the Christian church and they stopped being pagan. And over time, you get enough people doing that, and paganism starts losing members when Christianity gains them. This is the second part of a series on revisioning Christianity. Different scholars bring different views to help us understand the history of Christianity and its future. How did Christianity become empire's religion? Was Christianity a hoax? Is it believable today? Does it yet have a message to inspire peace and justice? My five guests include John Shelby Spong, author of the newly released Unbelievable, Why Neither Ancient Creeds Nor the Reformation Can Produce a Living Faith Today. David Skirbina, author of the newly released The Jesus Hoax, How St. Paul's Cabal Fooled the World for 2,000 Years. And Angela Yarber, creator of the Holy Women Icons Project. Last week, we heard from John Dominic Crossan, and this week, Bart Ehrman. Dr. Ehrman is a leading authority on the New Testament and the history of early Christianity. He's the author of more than 30 books and is Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Good to have you back, Dr. Ehrman, on Progressive Spirit. Thanks for having me again. What's the question you're asking and answering? It's a question that's fascinated me for a long time. Uh, It's the question of, you know, how did it happen? According to the New Testament, right after Jesus' death, there were 11 men disciples and a handful of women uh, who came to believe that he was raised from the dead. So, say, 20 people. Uh, These 20 people were lower-class, uneducated peasants from a remote part of the Roman Empire. Within 300 years, these 20 people had multiplied so much that there were 3 million of them. 
And by the end of the fourth century, there were 30 million of them. And so the question in the book is, how do you go from 20 people, especially 20 people like that, how do you go from 20 people to 30 million in uh, less than 400 years? About 30 million at the end of the fourth century, you said. What's the population of the Roman Empire then? Right. Well, the population is only 60 million. Fourth century, it's half of the empire and uh, has, as at that point, has become the official religion of Rome. And after that, uh, another hundred years, it even becomes more of the percentage of the Roman Empire. Is that right? Oh, yeah. By, in another century, there, there aren't a lot of pagans left. There are some, um, but there are a clear minority. And, of course, once you start moving into the Middle Ages, basically you're talking about Christianity. So the question is, how did it grow so quickly? What did you use to determine your answer? People have had a number of answers over the years. I'm, a lot of Christian believers would say that it's a miracle. Uh, you know, God did it. I don't have any uh, principled objections with that, but it, it does seem to have a problem, which is that if God made the Roman Empire Christian, why did it take so long? <laughs> you know, if it's a miracle, right? It should have happened right away, maybe. Or, or, and why was it never completed? I mean, you know, there are seven billion people in the world today, and only two billion are Christians. So, if if it really was an act of God, you'd have to explain why it wasn't completely successful. So, I don't deny that it was divinely driven or affirm it. I, I kind of put that to the side and ask, what what's the historical reason for it happening? The most common answer that uh, most people hear, that you probably hear, is that Christianity succeeded ultimately because the emperor Constantine became a Christian in the early 4th century, and it was the conversion of Constantine that did it. That's what I used to think. Uh, I thought that for years. I used to teach that. But as I did my research for the book, I came to realize that it was completely wrong, uh, that in fact, at the rate it was growing at the time, Christianity probably would have become the dominant religion of the empire, even if Constantine had not converted. If he hadn't converted, some other emperor probably would have, maybe you know, one of his sons or something. What I end up arguing is that Christianity was growing at a certain rate of growth. The rate of growth that happened early on in Christianity, if it continued at the rate of growth it was doing early on, even though not many people were converting early on, as time goes on and there are more and more Christians, when you start getting thousands of Christians or hundreds of thousands of Christians at the same rate of growth, the numbers coming in are fantastic. And so it forms a kind of exponential curve where just the numbers start becoming immense once the numbers are themselves are big. So over a few hundred years, over a certain rate of growth, Christianity is simply taking over the world. So really, it's an exponential curve. Well, the, the basic growth rate is uh, probably between 30 and 35 percent every decade. So like if you've got 100 people who are Christian this this year. In 10 years, you need to have about 130 or 135. And it breaks down to basically every 100 of you need to convert three or four people a year. But the thing is that in the ancient world, the head of a household, the pater familias, if you convert a male adult who has a family, in effect, you're converting his family because the pater familias determines the religion of the household. And so if there are 100 Christians all you really need, need to do is to convert one adult man uh, a year. And if he's got, say, a wife and two kids, that, that gives you four converts. That's just in one year. That's all you need to do. And you do that for three or 400 years, and Christianity takes over. The reason it takes over is because of something that's unique to Christianity that you don't find in any of the other religions of the Roman Empire, which is that if somebody converts to Christianity— they necessarily have to give up their other religions. This was not true of any of the traditional Roman religions, any of the religions of paganism. So if people who worship Zeus or Apollo or Athena or Aphrodite or whatever gods they worship, uh, they all worship many gods. And when they decide to worship a new god, they simply add that god on to the ones that they're already worshiping. And that's not what happens with Christianity, because if you decide to worship this god, the Christian god, you have to give up the other gods. And that makes Christianity unlike any of the others, which means that as people become Christian, they stop being pagan. And that means that Christianity is in, in fact growing by destroying the other religions in its wake. And it's the only religion doing that. It's kind of like Star Trek's The Borg just coming in and taking over the whole thing. Uh, I wanted <laughs> the, the chapter on 
on other religions, we might say, what we call pagans, and, and, and that name would never be, people would never self-identify as pagan. Can you, can you talk a little bit about to what these other religions uh, were like and what they did? When historians call them pagans, they're not using the term in a negative way. Uh, there's nothing derogatory about it. They're simply referring to people who practice religions that are neither Jewish nor Christian in antiquity. So anyone who's not a monotheist. All of these other religions are polytheists. They, they believe there are many gods, and they worship many gods. Any individual person will worship some of the great gods, such as Zeus and Apollo and Athena. They'll worship the gods of their own city. Each city has its own gods. They'll worship gods of their own family. Um, they'll worship gods of various places they're in, whether they're in a forest or a meadow or, uh, or in, uh, on a mountain. All of these places and uh, all these places have gods. And so these various gods are worshipped uh, in a variety of ways. But the things that are in common is that the in traditional Roman religion, uh, gods are principally worshipped by saying prayers to them and by uh, making offerings to them, usually some kind of sacrifice uh, to the gods. This is the way the gods have been worshipped before anybody could remember for, for centuries, for millennia. And that's how people were worshiping when Christianity appeared on the scene with different areas, different people worshiping different gods in different ways, but almost always including sacrifices and prayers. And that worship, the reason you worship the gods is because you wanted to keep things uh, going well. Right. Uh, you, you wanted st either stuff for yourself or your for your community or for the welfare, even of, of perhaps even the empire. But, but it wasn't about ethics. It wasn't about ethics. I mean, people in the ancient world were just about as ethical as people are today. Uh -huh. But ethics wasn't a part of religion. The gods, for the most part, really didn't care how you lived. They weren't that interested in ethics. If you did something really nasty, you know, like uh, if you murdered your parents, the, go the gods didn't like that kind of thing. But they didn't really care what your what your sexual ethics were. Uh, they didn't care whether you obeyed the government or not so much. They didn't care whether they weren't that concerned about your crimes. They, the gods were concerned about receiving your prayers and your offerings. And the reason you make prayers and offerings to the gods was because if you gave them what they wanted and needed, then they would give you what you wanted and needed. And that was important for people, not because of some kind of afterlife, not because they wanted to make sure they went to heaven when they died. Most people didn't think that anyway. Uh, what they wanted was to survive this life. People in the ancient world were living very near the edge. Almost everybody was living very near the edge. It was a world where if the rains don't come this year, your village will starve to death next year. If you get sick, there's no way for you to get healed. If you get a tooth abscess, it'll almost certainly kill you. Women are dying frequently in childbirth, and in infants frequently die when they're born. So that in the Roman Empire, every childbearing age woman had to have six children in order to keep the population constant. And so this is a very tough world, and the gods can provide things that we can't provide for ourselves, such as rain and the crops to grow and the livestock to reproduce and health. And so the gods are worshipped in order to make life uh, livable and even possibly uh, to make it, make it good. And these gods and the structures that supported them, I guess I was what I'm really getting at, uh, really was a stabilizing force, right, for society. There are people who are, I'm assuming, are, are paid, the priests or the people who build these temples or the artists. I mean, there's a whole commerce going on with this, too, right? No, it is it is a commercial thing, and in part, you you certainly have priests who uh, who are the officials who represent uh, the gods to the people and the people to the gods who are who are the ones who do the sacrifices, for example. So, if you're in a small town and there's a temple to Zeus, there'll be a priest to Zeus, and this priest is the one who performs the sacrifices to Zeus. Uh, you yourself, as just a, a lowly day laborer in town, you, you don't sacrifice uh, a sheep to Zeus. You take it to the temple, and the priest sacrifices it, and the priest then uh, butchers the animal and gives you the carcass back, and he burns the bones and the fat to Zeus, and you uh, have a party, because you've now got this sheep, and you can eat it now for dinner with all your friends, and you have a big celebration. And so it is a very social 
a, a social entity, uh, these religions that are tying together entire communities and even the entire empire. So Christianity comes along and says, okay, you can only play with us. You, once you come to us, you can't go back to Zeus. I mean, obviously that's going to create animosity. Well, it does, and, and in a way that no other religion does. I mean, if you, if you come into town and promote the worship of Apollo, for example, then people could say, yeah, I'll do that too. So we're going to do Zeus this month. We'll do Apollo next month. And, you know, and then somebody comes in and says, let's do Aphrodite. Okay, let's do Aphrodite. And then you add Aphrodite. And so it's like but the Christians come in town, and they say, you are worshiping false gods, they, the Christians are saying either that they don't exist or that they're evil demons, and you have to give that up, and you need to worship our God. This actually rips apart the social fabric of the community if you have people who start converting to Christianity, and it leads to a huge amount of tension. So you've got an exclusive religion, and also religion that converts people, because in a time in which ancient religion that has been there for centuries, they don't have to believe different things or take on different stories or anything like that, right? That's right. It makes Christianity unique. I mean, it seems weird to us, because we are accustomed to exclusive religions, so that in our world— if you're a Baptist, you're not also a Buddhist. Or if you're a Muslim, you're not also a Mormon. You choose what you're going to be. I mean, Jews are Jews, Christians are Christians, Muslims are Muslims, etc. In the ancient world, it wasn't that way. You could worship any number of gods, and there was no conflict because the gods weren't jealous of one another. They didn't deny each other the rights of worship. Uh, it was perfectly fine and, until the Christians came along and said, no, there's only one God. He's ours, and you need to worship him or you're going to pay an eternal price. You will, in fact, uh, be tormented forever if you don't worship our God. Was this message, I think what I got in your book, that this message was not necessarily received particularly well by the educated people? <laughs> yeah, I think that's safe to say. that That's why uh, Christianity had such a hard time convincing the elite who thought that this was a fairly crazy idea, this monotheism that Christians were pronouncing, where if you didn't worship their God, you would go to hell. They, they rejected that idea. Part of the problem was that most Christians, of course, came from the lower classes. One reason for that is because almost everybody in the world was from the lower classes, but there were very few elite among the Christians. And so the elite in the Roman populace generally thought of it as a lower class religion that wasn't worthy of belief. And this is one of the reasons there was opposition to uh, Christians among the uh, people in power. Let's talk about what might be in it for people who would convert to Christianity, let's say early on. If it's breaking up their social structure, is there a sense in which it's giving them some power that they didn't have before, or are they just scared into it by hell? Some people may have been scared into it by hell, but there are a couple of things going on. One is that it's not getting rid of, of all social structure. What it's doing is it's replacing one social structure with another. So people who come into the church all of a sudden have a whole new family. They have brothers and sisters, and they have fathers in the faith, and they take care of each other, and they spend time together, and they eat meals together. And so it becomes a new kind of social, uh, a social fabric. I don't think that that community aspect is what brought anybody into the faith, but it certainly is something that kept people in the faith and that was attractive to people who had already converted. And so the question is, what would make somebody convert in the first place? What I try to show in the book is that the Christians made common cause with pagans when it came to the reasons for worshiping a divine being. Pagans believed that you worship a divine being for the, for the benefits that can come from it for the crops and for the health and for the, uh, the victory in war and for, for whatever kind of benefits you pray for to God. And the Christians argued that their God could provide these things better than any of the pagan gods, that the pagan gods, in fact, were dead and lifeless and had no effect on anything, whereas the Christian God could heal the sick, and he could even raise the dead. He could bring the rains. He could uh, make sure that a woman doesn't die in childbirth. I mean, could, could do all the things that you turn to the divine power for. And so Christians convince people. And the thing to stress is they didn't have to convince hundreds of people at a time. They had to convince one or two people every now and then. And every time they convinced somebody, that person joined the Christian church, and they stopped being pagan. And over time, you get enough people doing that, and paganism starts losing members when Christianity gains them. 
I'm speaking with Bart Ehrman, the author of The Triumph of Christianity, How a Forbidden Religion uh, Swept the World. And one of the things you talk about um, with the idea of making fun of pagans' idols and whatnot, I mean, pagans themselves didn't understand the idols as doing stuff. They, they had a more nuanced understanding, right, of what a statue is, a representation. Yeah. Certainly the educated people realized, you know, th this is just a statue made out of wood. This statue was a representation of a divine entity. It made us cognizant of this divine entity. And some people may have thought that the divine being actually manifested power through this idol. But it wasn't that the idol itself was a god. The idol might have been a conduit for divine power, or it might have been simply a representation of divine power. Uh, but when, when the Christians accused pagans of worshiping idols, probably most pagans just thought that was wrong. That isn't what they were doing at all. Yeah. Talk to me about the imperial cult. Uh, what level, what presence did the Roman imperial cult have uh, over, over the populace? Well, this is one thing that makes uh, ancient religion, especially Roman religion, very different from what we have today. Because today, when we think about uh, God and we think about humans, we think that, you know, never the twain shall meet. I mean, the God is the Almighty who's up there, and we're just peons down here. And it's, there, there's no real connection, except, you know, you might pray to God. But the ancients didn't see it that way. The ancients understood that the human realm involved a kind of a continuum. Uh, there are some people who are far more powerful or intelligent or beautiful than the rest of us, and they're more like the gods are, because the gods are also on a continuum. There are some gods who are more powerful than other gods. The continua overlap so that there are some human beings that are so superior to the rest of us that, in a sense, they're semi-divine or, or partially divine or even divine. And so the Roman emperor certainly counted uh, in that group. The Roman emperor was the most powerful person in the empire by a long shot, and people uh, came to start thinking of him as, in some sense, a divine being. It's not that the Roman emperor was Jupiter, the, the king of the gods, or anything like that, but he was in some sense divine. And so starting with the first Roman emperor, uh, Caesar Augustus, when he died, the Senate declared that at his death, he had been taken up into heaven and had been made a full god. And so he was worshipped as a god uh, at his death. Uh, and after that, the emperors were worshipped. Usually, only the dead emperors were worshipped. Uh, sometimes, living emperors were worshipped, especially outside of Rome itself. Often, the provinces, in the eastern provinces, the, the emperor could be worshipped as a divine being. And so, it was a widespread cult to the, uh, to the emperor, the imperial cult that was spread throughout the empire. And what the Christians had to argue is that it wasn't the emperor who was the son of God, who was the Lord and Savior, but it was Jesus who was the Son of God, the Lord and Savior. And so this created a kind of competition between the emperor and Christ. Those early Christians, were they like resisting, in a sense, uh, empire by becoming a Christian, by calling Jesus the Son of God as opposed to Augustus the Son of God? Were they resisting bad things that the empire was doing, uh, resisting inequality, resisting empire building and so forth? Well, you know, a lot, of, a lot of scholars today want to uh, kind of approach this from a post-colonialist point of view and claim that the early Christians were adopting the kind of post-colonial uh, ideology that most of us believe in. I mean, most of us are against uh, colonial powers. It's tempting to interpret what the Christians were doing in light of that kind of post-colonialist analysis. And I think some of that is true. I think it's certainly true that the early Christians understood that Christ was their Lord and the Caesar was not, and that Christ was the one who brought salvation, the Caesar did not, and they did see that as a competition. And I think it is also true to say that the Romans saw this as a political issue. For the Romans, there, there was no separation of politics and religion the way there is now. You know, in, in neither Greek nor Latin, is, are there words for what we would call religion and politics? They're, they're not even words for those things because they, they didn't differentiate between these two things, uh, let alone have a separation of church and state. It was understood in the Roman Empire that the, that the emperor and the, the gods had made Rome great, 
And so the state naturally supported the worship of the gods. So if somebody didn't go along with that worship, they weren't simply making what we would think of as a religious decision. They were also making what we would think of as a political decision. And so the state could crack down on people who were who were refusing to uh, to worship the state gods. And so it certainly was a political thing. But I don't think it is that the Christians were standing for our current ideologies of the need for uh, democracy and equality and and th- those sorts of things. It wasn't that so much as it was the question, who's going to be your Lord? Is it going to be Caesar or is it going to be Christ? One more question along that line. Is, is there a sense in which becoming Christian uh, for those, let's say, slaves or people who were less empowered, that that gave them a social structure? For example, uh, I, I, I had a guest who said that the early Christians were communists. Yeah. Uh, and is there a sense in which that's true? Yeah, I mean, certainly they, they weren't Marxists in the modern sense, obviously. Right. But um, the Christians created new communities where, uh, in theory at least, I mean, it didn't really work out in practice most of the time, but in theory at least, um, before Christ, slaves and their masters were equal in Christ, and, and men and women, in theory, were equal in Christ. Uh, again, it didn't work that way out. It didn't work its way out socially so much because slaves continued to have to be obedient to their masters and women still were subservient to their men uh, most of the time throughout these early centuries. And once the Roman emperor converted, then the hierarchy became even more extreme and the inequalities came to be uh, exacerbated. But the principle that was preached, at least, was a kind of social equality that would resonate well with people who support a, a theoretical communism in the modern, modern world. My guest is Bart Ehrman. He's answering a big question. How did Christianity grow and, like a mustard seed or perhaps a cancer cell, triumph and become empire's religion? His book is The Triumph of Christianity, How a Forbidden Religion swept the world. More to come. Stay with us. I'm John Shuck, and this is Progressive Spirit. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen, and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show. And be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. Bart Ehrman is my guest. We're talking about his new book, The Triumph of Christianity, How a Forbidden Religion Swept the World. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schaff. Let's go to the end of the story. You actually begin your book with a discussion of Constantine, and then you go back. Uh, So you said in the research for your book, you came to really another understanding of of Constantine's role in this, that uh, even if he had not been converted to Christianity, Christianity would have uh, continued on on its growth. So what did Constantine contribute to this saga, and, and why did he become Christian? Well, yeah, those are two really good questions. Um, I'll do with the second one first. Why did he become a Christian? We actually have three accounts that are contemporaneous with um, uh, Constantine, three accounts of his conversion. And the interesting thing is all three of them uh, are by authors who knew Constantine personally and got said they got their information from Constantine. The problem is that these three accounts are somewhat at odds with each other. One of them is anonymous. One of them is by a church writer named Lactantius. And the third is by the church uh, historian Eusebius, the father of church history, as he's called. The three accounts are different from each other, but the thing they agree on is that Constantine claimed he had a vision that he interpreted to be a revelation to him. In two of these accounts, it's a revelation of Christ himself who convinces him that the Christian God is the only God to be worshipped. This apparently was in the context of a military uh, endeavor, and uh, Constantine is said to have come to a commitment to the Christian God, and after making this commitment, he started winning all of his battles, and he attributed that to the power of the Christian God, and he he made, in my opinion, he made a bona fide conversion. He he stopped being a pagan, uh, and he became, uh, became a Christian. 
What I argue in the book is that that itself is not what led to the success of Christianity, because as I pointed out earlier, Christianity was already growing at a uh, at an important rate of growth. That if it continued, it was going to take over the empire anyway. Because w- when people were converting to Christianity, they were leaving paganism, and after they start converting in droves, that's just what happens. Paganism starts getting destroyed. The thing that makes Constantine most significant, though, is that when he converted, Christianity was experiencing the biggest persecution it had ever suffered. It was a 10-year, very harsh in places uh, persecution that Constantine converted while it was going on, and then he asserted his imperial power to bring peace. He stopped the persecution. He and his co-emperor, Licinius uh, issued a decree declaring freedom of religion so that whether a person was a Christian or a Jew or any kind of pagan, they could practice the religion without fear of reprisal. And so this completely changed the tenor of uh, Christianity from being a persecuted minority to becoming a religion of most favored status, completely illicit and acceptable, and in fact, the religion of the Roman emperor himself. And that opened the door then for some of the elite to start uh, converting to Christianity. I remember hearing, and and I've thought this all along, too, that Constantine is is a Christian, and and he kind of uh, directs this council at Nicaea to get all these folks together, because maybe he cares about theology, but he really cares about a unified religion that goes along with his unified uh, empire, or him as emperor. Is is that still... uh, would you would you agree with that, or has your mind changed, or or where are you with that? Yeah, my mind's changed a little bit. What what I used to think is that Constantine. I used to think that Constantine actually didn't care about much of anything about Christianity, but that he yeah. he, he pure political motives for uh, becoming a Christian. I don't think that anymore because I've actually read his speeches, <laughs> which I probably should have done many years ago. Uh, and you can, it is quite clear in his speeches that he is a committed Christian. And his activity at the Council of Nicaea is a good case in point. Many people have misunderstandings about this council. In part, uh, I think it's because most people get their education about early Christianity by reading Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, uh, where you have a discussion of the Council of Nicaea, and everything that uh, Dan Brown says about the Council of Nicaea is flat out wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, and so uh, the Council of Nicaea did not decide which books would be in the New Testament. Uh, the Council of Nicaea did not decide whether Jesus would be the Son of God or not. These various things said about the Council of Nicaea simply aren't true. The Council of Nicaea was a—it was the first time that bishops from around the world had come together to decide an important issue that was dividing the church. Uh, Constantine himself called the council— And he called the council because different churches had different understandings of who Christ was. There were some churches and some Christian leaders who, uh, including a man named Arius, uh, who was uh, an influential teacher in Alexandria, Egypt, who maintained that Christ was the Son of God because in eternity past, when God alone existed, nothing else existed, God at some, to- some point uh, created his son. He begot his son. He brought his son into being. And so the son of God came into existence at some point in eternity past. The son of God then created the universe, and eventually he became a human and died for the sins of the world. In this understanding, Christ is a second-level divinity. He's subordinate to God the Father. And there was a time before which he actually existed. Uh, he, he, he's not eternal. He didn't always exist. He, there was a time before he existed. The opposing side to this argument said, no, Christ always existed. There never was a time when Christ did not exist, and he's not subordinate to God the Father. He is actually fully equal with God the Father in every way. And so Father and Son are completely equal. This debate, it, it might seem like it's a theological nicety, but in fact it was dividing the churches— Constantine wanted the church to be unified, and this part is right. He actually didn't care which side won this particular debate. I mean, he he believed Jesus was the Son of God. He was committed to the Son of God. He worshiped the Son of God. But he didn't think that this particular theological point was all that significant. Uh, he just wanted one side to become dominant. 
And so he held this council. The bishops argued it. It turned out to be a vast majority that agreed with the side that said Christ had always existed and he was fully equal with God. And so that became Constantine's belief too. And so that was the decision of the Council of Nicaea. And he wanted them, Constantine wanted them to reach that decision, not because he cared one or the other, but because he wanted the church to be unified because that would help unify his empire. And the subsequent effects of that are, uh, as I remember, I remember going to church history, taking my first church history class at Princeton, where you also went, and and hearing all this stuff, I, I kind of, I guess I had to, to admit myself, I kind of was rooting for Arius along the way. Um, but anyway, he ends up lo- losing, right? And I mean, and, and that was pretty violent. I mean, after this, it's like shutting all of this down. Tell, I, But I'm not sure about, about that. And, and, I'm, and I'm reading your book, and I'm all starting to question that. How aggressive then was the Orthodox movement uh, after, say, Nicaea or after a little bit further on um, in that fourth century when Christian Christian Orthodox becomes eventually the, the religion of, yeah. um, of Roman Empire? How were they in regards to tolerance to the losers here, like Arius or pagans? Yeah, so um, the answer is not very tolerant. And uh, the, the, uh, because... Christianity was always built on the idea that there is a right belief and a wrong belief. The right belief will get you into heaven and the wrong belief will send you to hell. And so Christians actually were uh, more violently opposed to heretics than they were to pagans. Uh, the pagans you can convert, but the heretics, they've just blown it because they believed the wrong thing. What ended up happening turned out to be a huge irony, which is that Constantine was a devout Christian of the Nicene Creed persuasion. His son, Constantius II, though, was an Arian, and he enforced Arian Christianity on the world of his day. And so for the middle part of the fourth century, it was Arianism that was on the uh, on the rise uh, until the end of the fourth century, especially when Theodosius I came in power, and he was anti-Arian, <laughs> and he mm. started passing legislation that made Arian uh, the Arian form of Christianity flat out illegal and punishable. Uh, there was violence, and it went back and forth through the fourth century until Theodosius. And uh, other forms of Christianity, too. I mean, we think of uh, now what the, the, all those texts discovered in the uh, bottles in the caves at Nag Hammadi. Was that uh, a part of the oppression, do you think, that they had to hide these documents, that there are other forms of Christianity also that needed to go undercover? So there, there were forms of the Christianity that I, that I think are more pronounced in the second and third centuries, where you get groups of Gnostics. Uh, Gnostic Christians who mm-hmm. believe things that strike most Christians today as very weird indeed. Uh, you know, things like there are 36 gods instead of one God, and the Creator God is not the true God, and uh, Jesus is not just one thing. There are actually two things. There's a man, Jesus, and there's a divine element, Christ, that comes into him for a while and then leaves him at his death. I mean, they have these they have these very these teachings that strike many Christians as very strange. They were uh, they were a force to be reckoned with in the second and into the third century, but they started being uh, overwhelmed by the Orthodox uh, believers. These documents at Nag Hammadi are Gnostic writings. They were made in the 4th century, so there are still Gnostic groups around in the 4th century, and they end up being buried off in the wilderness uh, outside of the village of Nag Hammadi sometime after the 4th century, and it's usually thought that it's because the monks in the local monastery, they were either cleaning out their library and wanting to get rid of heretical books, or some people think that, in fact, these monks in this monastery actually liked this kind of stuff and were hiding the books so they could go back and retrieve them later. It's impossible to know which is right, but it is true that by the end of the fourth century, these various groups were being uh, pretty well uh, squelched and came to be very much in the minority until they virtually disappear. I'm speaking with Bart Ehrman. He's the author of The Triumph of Christianity, How a Forbidden Religion Swept the World. We're talking about how Christianity, how it exploded uh, and became so quickly, really, within a few hundred years, uh, the dominant uh, religion of of the Roman Empire. And partly uh, what I'm hearing you say and and what I've read is that it's it's because of required conversion, uh, it's exclusive, and it put uh, ethics as well, um, kind of put a total package of life in to Christianity. Uh, can you talk more about that part? Yeah, so um, 
in in ancient in the ancient world, in the Roman world especially, you, um, people have their religious activities, their uh, sacrifices, and their prayers, and their uh, their divination, the hearing from the gods, what the gods have to say. They have ethics as part of their philosophy, so they, they talk about how to live and how to behave toward one another. And they have myths that they tell that are not part of their religion. Myths are the entertaining stories they tell about the gods that help them understand how the gods behave, but they're not they're not part of their religious activity directly. Uh, There's a separate realm. Uh, and so you get ethics and you get myths and you get religious activities, cultic acts. And these are all separate areas of life for for ancient people. Christianity came along and combined all of these things. Christianity has what one scholar has called a totalizing discourse, meaning that it, it is a way of being that is for the total person. It involves uh, your religious activities, uh, baptism, taking the Lord's Supper, saying your prayers, meeting together in your communities, there, these, these religious practices. There's also ethics as part of the religion. God in Christianity cares how you live very much. You have to live an ethical life. So it's part of the religion now. And the, the myths, you have Christians telling stories, stories found in uh, sacred writings, uh, the writings that became the Bible, stories about how God has interacted with his people in the past, much as the myths told about how the gods interacted with people in the past. Christianity has these things all together in one package. So it's a totalizing discourse that brings all these things together, things that in the pagan world were kept as distinct categories. Now, you are very careful throughout your book. You say it several times that you're not offering an evaluation of whether or not this uh, Christian growth was a good thing or a bad thing. You're just describing it. From my perspective, reading your book, I'm thinking, well, wait a second. What what do we lose when the totalizing effect comes into place? And, and for example, ethics comes subsumed under Christian doctrine. I mean, what about all of these other philosophers and, and all of these ethicists who have other things to say? Are they not kind of ultimately silenced and put under one voice? Yeah, no, we do lose a lot. And we do lose a lot in philosophy. Uh, and so you have very rich philosophical traditions in the Roman world, uh, Stoic philosophy and Platonic philosophy and Aristotelian philosophy. And you have all of these philosophical schools, the Epicureans, uh, and they pretty much are, uh, they pretty much disappear as a result of Christianity taking over. You also lose tons of literature, fantastic literature by all accounts, thousands of, of writings of every kind. I mean, novels, scientific treatises, poems, uh, histories, biographies, uh, all, you know, most of which get lost. Uh, you get fantastic artwork, which gets destroyed, sometimes by Christians who are destroying statues of the gods or destroying temples. There's a lot of culture that gets lost, and there's a lot of philosophy that gets lost. And that that part is a bit of a pity, because, uh, you know, we would love to have all this ancient literature and, and art and, and so on, and we simply don't have it anymore. As an historian, could you possibly weigh in on this question, that Christianity is responsible in some way for Rome's decline and the West's descent into the Dark Ages? Well, you know, that was the thesis uh, of uh, Edward Gibbon in his book uh, on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And uh, I would say that most historians today think that that's probably uh, too simplistic a view Gibbon had an interesting argument, which is that uh, Christianity, since it advocated a religion of love instead of a religion of dominance, it simply couldn't sustain itself on the political realm. If your governmental policies are turn the other cheek when somebody strikes you, you're not going to win very many battles. <laughs> and so hmm. the idea is that it weakens the empire. And uh, yeah, uh, on one level, that's true. But in fact, the Christian emperors were just as ruthless and cruel as the emperors that came before them. Uh, in my book, I talk about some of the legislation that the Emperor Constantine, a committed Christian, passed, uh, and I described some of the, the tortures that he legislated for people who committed one crime or another, and they are quite hideous. And so these Christian emperors were just as bloodied as their uh, pagan predecessors. So I don't think it was because, uh, because of anything inherent in Christianity. I think that there are probably other, uh, there, there are other political and military reasons why the empire fell. Part of 
of it was that the empire was just so huge and there were so many powerful, we would call them countries, outside the empire that were invading all the time. Eventually, it simply couldn't sustain itself. Yeah, and what what about the descent kind of into uh, this this Dark Ages time when pagan philosophy and and is, is simply erased? Well, yeah, it is, and um, you know it, it keeps recurring because Christian theologians themselves, throughout the Middle Ages, of course, have to have categories for thought, and most of the categories of thought that they adopt happen to be. Uh, Greek philosophical traditions. They may not be quoting Plato and Aristotle as much, but but many of the categories they use come from earlier uh, earlier traditions. What you're referring to is the Dark Ages. I guess uh, people today might say, you know, after late antiquity, when you get into the early Middle Ages, there certainly is a change because you don't have this uh, this massive imperial force that is bringing uh, not only. Uh, not only uh, politics, what we would call politics, and government and safety into their world, but also allowing for the propagation of culture. You simply don't have this kind of um, uh, centralized authority uh, anymore. And so I don't think it's the fault of Christianity. It's the fact that you don't have a centralized government that that can control what's going on with, within its borders. Bart Ehrman, my guest, The Triumph of Christianity, uh, How a Forbidden Religion uh, Swept the World. Let's go back earlier, back to Paul. What was in it for Paul to do this? I mean, was he sincere about his work, uh, his conversion? Uh, Someone suggested that Paul really just kind of foisted a hoax on folks. Yeah, no, I think think that's completely bogus. I think think Paul was absolutely sincere. He He was getting beat up too much to think that he actually was just trying to pull a fast one. By his own account, he was flogged within an inch of his life five times with Jewish synagogues. He was beaten by rods by Roman authorities on three occasions. He once was stoned nearly to death. He had a very unpleasant life by any standard. And I don't think he's doing it just for the jollies of it. I I think Paul's conversion was absolutely sincere. I'm not saying that I think Jesus really did appear to him. Uh, I'm, myself, I'm not a Christian, and so I don't think that, that, he, that he actually saw the resurrected Jesus. But I do think he really believed he saw the resurrected Jesus, and he believed that he had been called to take this message to, to the non-Jews, to the, to the Gentiles, the pagans. Uh, and so he devoted his life, probably some 30 years of his life, to trying to spread this message, even though it meant terrible hardship for him. Uh, and so I think he was completely sincere. Uh, the only thing in it for him was that he thought he advocated the truth, and he thought he was going to get an eternal reward for doing what he was doing. One of the things I argue in the book, this is a new insight that I got while doing my research for the book. I had, I had studied Paul, you know, like you, for 30 or 40 years, and uh, 40 years, yeah. And um, But I came to a new insight, which is this, that when Paul came to realize that he was the one God had called to take the message to the Gentiles, he came to realize that this is what God had predicted in the book of Isaiah, that there would be a person who appeared who would bring light to the Gentiles. Uh and Paul came to think he was that one. Uh, and Paul, so Paul actually thought he was the fulfillment of Scripture. Um, he was the culmination of God's plan for salvation for the world. So he certainly thought big <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of, what, of what he was up to, and he was willing to suffer for it. But I don't think I absolutely don't think that it was a hoax on his part. One of the chapters that you talk about that I really thought was fascinating is how miracles uh, play into this and how people's belief in miracles that they hear and and how um and how influential that was for people to say yeah i'm on to christianity because i've heard about this miracle that's it really made can you talk more about that why why is the hearing of a miracle so important i think it's absolutely crucial and it's because uh, you you have to consider why are people being religious at all in the ancient world uh-huh. it's for the reasons we said before it's because the gods can provide us with things that we can't provide ourselves and Christians were claiming that their God could do it better than any of the other gods. And so their God can heal the sick. He can bring the rain. He can, uh, he can, uh, he can even raise the dead. God does miracles. And so it's interesting when you read the literature of the first uh, four centuries of Christianity, in almost every instance when somebody converts, it's because they've seen or heard a miracle. 
because what the miracle shows is that God is active in the world and is very powerful. With the Christians, when they convinced somebody that their God was more powerful than the other gods, that made the person have to decide, do I give up all of my other religious traditions to follow the Christian God, uh, or do I remain pagan? If I remain pagan, then I don't have access to this power. If I do accept the Christian God, then I, then I can receive the benefits that this God can, can give. And moreover, God's power that he's manifest now by healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons and doing these, all these other things, the power that is manifest now is going to be manifest in even a bigger way after death, because afterwards God's power is going to be manifest in heaven and hell. And so if you side with God, you'll be given an eternal reward. And if you oppose God, you're going to be punished forever. And so it, I think it's all about the miracles. I think it's the belief that God's power can be manifest in a person's life that is leading people to, to come to accept the Christian God. That's still very powerful today. Uh, uh, think of these, these, these churches still promoting miracles, and, and, and not to get on a rant about it, but I mean, there, there's something about the human psyche that just believes that stuff. And Christianity, perhaps early on, capitalized on that. Well, it's, you know, it's not an accident just in terms of the contemporary scene that, uh, that more liberal churches that are more uh, kind of um, advanced and possibly intellectually sophisticated and not as, uh, not as prone to emphasize that miracles are happening all the time, those, those communities are losing members. And the churches that are gaining members throughout the world are groups like the Pentecostal churches and other fundamentalist churches, which stress that God is active in the world and God is doing miracles. And, and if you believe, you can have a miracle. Uh, and that that continues to convince people. I guess I got to add some faith healing into my shtick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <we're not. laughs> oh man, Bart Ehrman, this is an incredible book. I really enjoyed this, and I really enjoyed this conversation. His book is called "The Triumph of Christianity: How a Forbidden Religion uh, Swept the World." A last word. My last word. Yes. Well, um, you know, I wanted to say that I called the book "The Triumph of Christianity." But I don't write the book in a triumphalist mode, which mm -hmm. means that I try to consider both the winners and the losers. I mean, there's no doubt that the Christians won. I mean, they, they took over the Roman Empire. Uh, and that led to a lot of good things for us. I mean, our entire culture, all of the, the artists and the authors, the musicians that we adore, uh, come out of the Christian tradition one way or the other. So it, that's all great. Uh, but there were also losses. There are people whose uh, religions were destroyed in front of their very eyes, whose uh, statues were mutilated, whose temples were leveled to the ground, uh, whose, uh, whose books were burned, and that was a loss. Uh, so at the end, it's hard to tell whether the, the gain was greater than the loss or not. Uh, but I would say that both, there were both gains and losses. But any way that you calculate it, it was a huge cultural transformation as Christianity took over the empire. Bart Ehrman, thanks so much for the book. Thanks for being with me today. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and the Public Radio Exchange. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schock. Be well.